I have a long title to compensate. It is the history behind and the distinction between particular Baptist and pedo-Baptist federalism. Um, and something else I need to say before I talk. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I don't know if I fear most uh, the two Rene Hens uh, in coming in front of you or the Texas homeschool moms in uh, the room that will come see me afterward to correct my pronunciation. I know I have the wrong emphasis. Uh, I know that I will make many mistakes and uh, please forgive me in advance for that. So, uh, before putting the emphasis on the distinction, I just want to stress the unity that we have with our pedo-baptist brothers uh, from different confessions, but especially those uh, around the Westminster Standard. Um, and our own confession starts with an appreciation of this unity uh, in the midst of diversity, because uh, even though we're separated by baptism and by some church issue, uh, we're, we were back then in the same nonconformist family uh, and supported the same persecution uh, for being nonconformist. And uh, the um, confession in its preface says to the judicial and impartial reader, I won't read all the preface, don't worry, but uh, you have a small quote right here. It says uh, that this, the fact that they're confessing their faith using the Westminster Confession uh, of Faith and the Savoy Declaration, uh, so the Presbyterian and the Congregationalist Confessions, uh, so the fact that they're using these documents, this we did the more abundantly to manifest our consent, consent with both in all the fundamental articles of the Christian religion, as also with many others whose orthodox confessions have been published to the world on the behalf of the Protestant in diverse nations and cities, and also to convince all that we have no itch to clog religion with new words, but do readily acquiesce in that form of sound words which had been in consent with the Holy Scriptures, used by others before us, hereby declaring before God, angels and men, our hearty agreement with them in that wholesome Protestant doctrine which, with so clear evidence of Scripture, they have asserted. So... Um, even tonight, if I'm going to discuss the points of distinction uh, about covenant theology, we should not consider our own covenant theology as completely distinct from those of the pedo-baptist persuasion. Um, we should uh, instead see the particular Baptist understanding of the covenants as a branch of the reform tree. And uh, for that, I have a lot of appreciation for the doctoral work of my dear brother uh, Sam, uh, From Shadow to Substance, the Federal Theology of English Particular Baptist, where he's showing that uh, it was not out of the blue that uh, we invented a new and other, completely other covenant theology, but it was in a trajectory uh, of uh, the reform taught. And uh, if you want a really scholarly book uh, to uh, show you and prove you that uh, we should see it in, in continuity and in harmony for the main part of the reform understanding of covenant, uh, this book, you will uh, benefit a lot from it. So this being said, it is important to uh, also acknowledge that there are distinctions with covenant theology. Um, in regard to uh, the Presbyterian, and that those distinctions are at the root of what makes us Baptist and not pedo-Baptist. 
So when you look at the differences between Presbyterians or Pedo-Baptists and Baptists, what is obvious as a point of distinction is baptism. Um, they baptize infants, and we don't, and uh, we just baptize believers. Uh, there's uh, debate among Baptists, uh, the age of the believers and at what time uh, can the, the profession of faith be credible. But what is required in our point of view for baptism is a profession of faith. And this will also, uh, well, it's not bringing, but it flows from a different understanding of what is the church uh, with our pedo-baptist brothers. Um, so baptism and the doctrine of the church is what is obvious in our uh, distinctions. But what is underneath those two uh, obvious doctrines is federalism, the doctrine of the covenants. So here is the plan for my presentation. As a Baptist, I need three points. Uh, so it's going to be the historical context, then the pedo-baptist federalism, and then the particular Baptist federalism. Uh, before going ahead, let's just ask our Lord's blessing on this uh, presentation. Our Father, um, we are thankful that we, come, we can come as an assembly before you to worship you by singing together and also by listening to your word and to... Um, these uh, presentation and uh, this theology uh, from our forefathers that came before us and that taught through the covenants and how to articulate um, all this the, that your word is revealing. And we pray that you will help us to grasp and understand uh, these matters that can be sometimes complicated, but that you will bring your light by your spirit and that we will have more uh, love for you and for the clarity of your word and that you, we may serve you uh, with more uh, understanding and faithfulness. And all this we ask in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. So, for the historical context, uh, I want to give you just a broad context. Uh, we won't be able to go into narrow details. Um, and it's important, I think, that we start with the historical context because for the better or the worse, uh, the historical context influences our theology. We're not always aware exactly uh, how our own context uh, will have an impact on our theology, but it does. And it certainly does when we come to comparing uh, the covenant theology of the pedo-baptist and the Baptist persuasion. Uh, history uh, is very much involved. So we live right now in a secular age, and uh, we have in our society a plurality of religious views that uh, coexist, uh, that are not all Christians, and they are from uh, many different uh, understanding of the world and of God. And uh, under the same region, they can coexist under the same government, and the government, because of the uh, multiplicity and plurality of religion has mainly taken a stance of neutrality, if neutrality is achievable in this world, and not being confessional at all. That was not the world uh, where the Reformation happened. Um, and it's, it can be difficult for us to imagine the world into which the Reformation of the Church happened. Uh, the reformers of the 1500s inherited what uh, we called Christendom. So it was a, a kingdom um, that was Christian. Uh, there was not just one kingdom, several kingdoms, uh, but there was mainly a dominant culture. Uh, and during the Middle Ages, the Christian influence 
has uh, really dominated uh, in the Western world. And this Christian dom um, was uh, a bit of an hybrid structure of the society where the civil and ecclesiastical power were really intertwined. Uh, they were distinct from one another, but uh, they were really uh, functioning together. Uh, there was the Pope Galazius I at the end of the 5th century that had established the uh, Two Swords doctrine based on the Two Swords of Luke 22. And one sword represents the ecclesiastical power and the other the civil power. But really, they work together there uh, in, in, in that time and for the, the main part of the Middle Ages, uh, you have some confessional state. Uh, they're not like neutral religiously. Uh, they're, uh, they are kings and, and emperors that are confessing the Christian faith and they are related with the church and with the ecclesiastical authority. And sometimes there's a bit of rivality of uh, who has the stronger hand and should we see the, the, the state as establishing the church or the church as establishing the, 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 the state who crowns who. Um, but in that context, uh, you have a confessional state and a state church. Um, and pedo-baptism was a significant connection between these two spheres. Because uh, what has developed in terms of church attendance was not uh, as we have mainly today in our uh, uh, religious plurality context where people that are here are here because they want to be. And uh, we have church of professants, of confessants, people who, who adhere to a Christian faith uh, and, and, and they, 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 they appropriate that, they confess it. But um, with the, 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 this structure, with this, this Christendom, you had church of the masses, so uh, you are born into a Christian kingdom and you are going to be made a Christian from the, the moment of your birth. And pedo-baptism was a very significant um, uh, practice to connect those two spheres because it was uh, giving you entrance both at the same time into the ecclesiastical sphere. It's a religious ordinance. Uh, it's a ritual, and, and the, the Roman church taught that it was um, saving. It was a saving grace where you applied through the sacrament the grace of regeneration. So we're saving you by baptiz baptizing you. But at the same time, it served as a, a civil uh, register to show uh, who is part of this visible and civil kingdom. And I don't know if it was that uh, in the United States, but uh, where I'm from in Quebec, it was really a highly Roman Catholic area. And your, your, your baptismal um, record served also as a civil document uh, to prove your, your citizenship. And when you, you were born, it's, it's, um, it was like an official document. And this is really something we inherit from this structure of the Middle Ages of Christendom. Um, so, this hybrid uh, society between political and, and church and pedo-baptism makes a significant connection to brings you and both at the same time. Um, and then the reformations, and I, I use the plural because there's sometimes we talk about the reformation, but it's really not just a unified uh, even that will happen uh, in history. The, the, we can talk in the singular, but there was many reformations uh, in, in, in Germany, in Switzerland, and in England, and it will take different um, uh, approach to what is to be reformed and who will do the reformation and uh, how we should proceed. So there are common ground, but also some differences. But the reformers... Um, they did inherit this, uh, this structure of Christendom, of church and state together, of church of the masses. Everyone is a Christian in this society and is uh, born into that society, received baptism, is, is, is made a Christian from 
from its birth. Um, so the Reformation was really about the recovery, first of all, of sola fide, the, the, the doctrine that, uh, the, the, the biblical doctrine that explains how we how, uh, are justified before God. It is not by the sacraments, it's not a process, it is not by our own deeds, it's uh, by believing that we are forensically justified. So forensically by opposition to a gradual process of transformation, uh, it's, it's, it's more a verdict. Uh, when you believe, God imputes to you the righteousness of Christ, and it's, it's a free gift. And so you're not in the process of being saved, you're, you're saved when you're believing. Um, you may not know exactly when you have been converted, but it's, uh, you are saved if, you're, if you are a believer. Um, and it's by faith alone. So this uh, recovery by Martin Luther of justification by faith alone eventually has led uh, him to also confess another sola of the Reformation, sola scriptura, when he got opposed by the, the Catholic theologians and he had to defend his views. Uh, well, at the end, the only ammunition left for him was the scriptures. Uh, and uh, eventually, sola scriptura became the, the, the main principle upon which we ought to bring the reformation of the church. It's not uh, upon the writings of the fathers and uh, the, the different councils of the church, but scripture alone. Uh, and the scripture alone was the basis for the recovery of sola fide. So the magisterial reformation, what did they do with this church that they inherited, this structure of Christendom, uh, this connection between state and, 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 and church power and pedo-baptism and everyone in, in the state is being made a Christian from birth? Well, they did not reject this structure of church. They did not reject Christendom. They embraced this structure as if it was the right biblical approach to church. Uh, it's difficult to get out of our own historical context, and sometimes we can blame them for not uh, going far enough and not seeing that, well, you know, this hybrid thing of Christendom, it's not really in, in the Scripture. Um, and, but they were a product of their own time as we are from, from ours, and we probably don't see some of our uh, lack and, and inconsistencies in our uh, own theology and, and people uh, from century uh, eventually, if the Lord uh, is not uh, back, uh, well, will maybe critic us too. But they embraced this structure and they, so they kept pedo-baptism uh, with different justifications for it, uh, different than the Roman Catholics and even among the different uh, Protestant family, they don't have the same explanation. Lutherans and Reform don't have the same justification to keep pedo-baptism. Even though they were challenged by the first Anabaptists to reject that, uh, they, they respond to, to it and they kept it, and mainly because this was a principle of uniformity for the, the, the good harmony of society uh, to, to bring the magisterial power together with the church power, and we call it the magisterial reformation because it was not just done by the church and by the churchman or the theologian. They had the approval of government, of the civil authorities uh, at different levels uh, in Germany and in Switzerland, the way it was working, but uh, really they, had, they were backed by the government. Um, so they kept pedo-baptism and they really kept also this state church. Uh, it, it more or less had a national or more regional scope rather than universal as it, it used to have in the Holy Roman uh, Empire. Um, but uh, in my estimation, when I think about the magisterial reformation, what I see is a good soteriology on one side, the, justification by faith alone, married with a wrong ecclesiology. 
So it resulted into a, a mixed church. Um, and um, when you think about, you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church, well, at least in their theology, they had a soteriology that matched their ecclesiology. What I mean by that is for a Roman Catholic uh, approach to church, well, everyone in the church is saved. Well, in the, is in the process of being saved. Might go to purgatory for some time, but he's, he's saved if he has received the, the grace of baptism and he's receiving the, the sacraments and he's slowly getting to heaven. And it, it applies uh, indifferently to Everyone, unless you commit a mortal sin and, and you lose your, 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 your salvation. Otherwise, uh, if you are part of the, this church, you are saved. So you have a match between soteriology and ecclesiology. The church corresponds to those that are saved. Well, you don't have that with the Reformed Church. You have a right soteriology where you understand that it's only believers, only those who come to repentance and faith to Christ that are saved, but nonetheless, the church is composed of all that are baptized, and it's a mixed church. You have saved and unsaved people in this, in this church. So you don't have a soteriology that match exactly ecclesiology. And you have that in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I have two quotes here, one on the church and one on baptism, that show you this understanding the visible church, and the idea of the visible church is uh, with, in distinction from the invisible church. The invisible church is just the elect, just those that are saved. But the visible church includes the elect, but not just the elect. Other people that are the church, by right, they have a right to be there. They are the church of Christ, but they are not saved. But this visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion together with their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you see, this is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Right now, all Presbyterian church in the United States are mainly confessional churches. By that I mean it's not church of multitudes or church of the masses where uh, all all kinds of sinners are there just because they have to be there because the, 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 the culture is Christian and if you don't go to church, well, you might be put to jail at some point. So, uh, no, it's only those that goes uh, against the, the culture, we could say, uh, in which we live and they, they are true believers with their children. But you see that they, they kept the same affirmation of visible church that was there at first to uh, to, to justify a, a, a church, a state church, a church of the masses. And then on baptism, the way they kept a, and, and, uh, the pedo baptism, they say not only those that do actually profess faith in an obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. So they're not opposed to credo-baptism. Um, of course, we baptize if we, come, uh, we have a pagan and uh, he's being converted to Christianity. Well, we, we, we will know he's a Christian by the profession of his faith. Uh, but there is really two reasons to baptize someone. He, he needs to profess the faith or to be the infant of someone who professed the faith. So how could they account for a mixed church? The visible church concept will, where it's really a, a church of the masses, a church of state. And pedo-baptism, if they had a right understanding of the gospel of justification by faith alone, knowing that in their big national churches, they don't have only believers. Well, they were able to account for that view of the church and of baptism through covenant theology. But we're not there yet. Um, because the same state church context has produced a different view of the church that is the congregational ecclesiology. Um, and we need to understand that it's not the doctrine of baptism that was at first the root of credo-baptist, particular Baptist covenant theology. It was the doctrine of the church. 
that uh, led us to a different understanding of the covenant. So the English Reformation um, is a bit different than, uh, you know, the Lutheran Reformation starts really with, with Martin Luther, with his own personal crisis, uh, his need of assurance. And, 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 but the English Reformation, it's uh, more of a top-down Reformation. It's not a grassroots movement. Uh, we could find, of course, some uh, reformers that, that has pushed the, 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 the preaching of the gospel, but the, the official... And, and magisterial reformation uh, went from the, 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 the divorce of Henry VIII uh, and, and, um, who in, in 1534 where he adopted the Act of Supremacy where he declared uh, himself as the head of the church. So he gets rid of the Pope, gets rid of the Catholic Church, keeping really a Catholic theology at this point, uh, making a few... Uh, reform here and there, but very slightly. Uh, and through those different reigns from Henry VIII to his son, Edward VI, so we can stay with the first slide, and Mary I, and then Elizabeth I, all the children of, of Henry VIII, uh, there was many political maneuverings and compromises and ups and downs of uh, the Protestant causes, cause for, for England. Um, so, um, and those different uh, reformation, counter-reformation, compromises, eventually had produced uh, a movement inside of the Church of England that we call Puritanism. So the Puritans were those who wanted to have a true reformed church, not a compromised church between Roman Catholic theology and, and some uh, Protestant preaching. Uh, they wanted a pure church uh, pure in terms not of uh, only uh, uh, believers, but pure in terms of pure in worship, uh, pure in its theology and its confession. But Puritans wanted to reform the church from within. They didn't want to leave the church of England. But eventually, uh, there's the question that uh, was asked among this influence of the Puritan, well, is that the right structure for the church that we're working with? Is really the church of Jesus Christ this national um, church that brings together some manifest unconvert people but that have been baptized and, and that are not really disciplined by, by the clergy because they're, they're not uh, heretics and they will just be passively there confessing what they have to confess, but it's obvious that they're not converts. Uh, and at the head of this church, we have the king or the queen, uh, and uh, we're always uh, negotiating with parliament of what kind of, 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 of reformation is allowed and not, and uh, we're being imposed some uh, liturgy that we're not sure is biblical, and it's being imposed through uh, acts of uniformity. Is really the church that we read in the New Testament, is that the true structure of the church? And this... Um, Puritanism um, uh, instinct has eventually led to uh, another movement that we call the separatist. So those were Puritans that eventually said, well, that's not the true church, this, this, this structure. And we're not saying that there's no true Christian in the Church of England, but that's not the, the proper way we should structure the church. The true church should only gather um, some, some, some people who profess actively, voluntarily, personally the faith uh, uh, toward Jesus Christ and are, that are faithful to Him. And so eventually the separatists that separate themselves from the Church of England, they form a church not of multitude, but a church of uh, a congregation of believers. So that's how congregationalists was, was born and through that uh, reflection on what is the church? So we reject the national structure for a local structure. We reject the multitude approach to the congregational approach. We reject the idea that it's the king that is the head of the church, and rather it's Jesus Christ that is the head of the church, and the congregation is right under Jesus Christ and led by his word. 
The first congregational churches appeared in England in the uh, 1580s. And they were persecuted at first because they were nonconformists. They refused to conform to uh, what was the uniformity, what was uniform in the way we should uh, worship God in the Church of England. And so uh, in 1593, the Parliament adopted a law that required their weekly attendance to the Church of England. So if there were some separatist congregationalists that would gather secretly, well, they uh, were, were mandated to keep going to the Church of England. And after a month, if you were abs- uh, not present in the Church of England, you could face exile or even death. So that was the culture back then. Uh, you uh, were imposed uh, the Church of England if you were in England. So that's in that time that many nonconformists exiled to New England uh, and other uh, places on the continent. And um, that's what eventually brings us to the Particular Baptists. Um, so how did the Particular Baptists uh, came onto the scene? It was uh, through uh, one of these particular congregational church that was planted in London in 1616. Uh, we call it the Jacob Latrop Jesse Church uh, because uh, these are the name of the three first pastors uh, that came successively, Henry Jacob, John Latrop, and Henry Jesse. Uh, this was not a Baptist church. It was a congregational church. And eventually in that church, they debated infant baptism. So the, the idea was, well, if the true church ought to be composed of believers only, shouldn't we apply baptism to believers only? So there was this discussion around 1638 in this congregational church, and eventually a small group detached from this church to form uh, First Baptist London. And... It was a separate congregation that kept good uh, terms with this former uh, mother church, we could call it, uh, this uh, uh, Jacob Latrop Jesse Church. Uh, It was under the leadership of the pastor John Spilsbury. Uh, In 1644, we found seven of these congregations in London, and they published a joint confession of faith, responding to uh, the call of the Westminster Assembly that was sitting back then and, and having rumors that there are Anabaptists in London and these are very evil people and they uh, do all kinds of, of um, not recommend stuff. And, 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 but they, there were some among the assembly that, that have more sympathies than others toward nonconformists and uh, to the point that the assembly asked to uh, the anti-pedo-baptists to uh, put forth the statement of what they believe, uh, why they would reject pedo-baptism, and well, a few months later, we have the first London uh, Baptist confession that was published. So the document was not there to state their entire faith, but just to show that they were not crazy uh, Anabaptists uh, that uh, they, they, they heard about in Munster uh, a few decades before. But uh, they were decent Protestant faithful men in the trends of the Puritan uh, tendency and, and separatist, but not heretics. And Uh, In this confession, we can uh, read, well, you have a good commentary that you will be able to use to uh, uh, appreciate this document in its own historical context. Um, But I just want to quote three articles uh, showing where there is a, a different approach to church and baptism. So the church... Uh, It says, being thus joined, every local church hath power given them from Christ for their well-being to choose among themselves meet persons for elders and deacons being qualified according to the word. So you see that the the church government is congregational. Article 42 says uh, something uh, also in in that, that vein. Christ at likewise given power to his church to receive in and cast out any member that deserves it. 
And this power is given to every congregation and not to one particular person, either member or officer, but in relation to the whole body in reference to their faith and fellowship. And finally, about baptism, Article 39. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament given by Christ to be dispensed upon persons professing faith or that are made disciples whom upon profession of faith ought to be baptized and after partake of the Lord's Supper. So you see a quite different understanding of what the church is and who composed the church and who should receive baptism, right? So during uh, this time, uh, we found in England about 40 congregations. And the, this uh, revolution that was going on at the same time under Oliver Cromwell was very um, uh, was favoring nonconformists. And uh, by the year uh, 1660, uh, we count around 130 congregations in the British Isles uh, of, of the Baptist persuasion. Things will turn in a different direction in 1660 at the Restoration and especially in 1662 where uh, the Church of England, uh, well, the Parliament will adopt an act of uniformity and all non-conformists will be persecuted from that point until uh, there will be toleration in 1689 um, uh, with a change of, 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 of rule in England. But... Um, during that time, um, after the, the 1662, the Act of Uniformity, Presbyterian, congreg Congregationalists, and Particular Baptists were all in the same nonconformist uh, boat and persecuted together. And that's why they put forth a second confession to affirm their unity with those brothers. And it's interesting to see how close they were, how they framed their theology using the same uh, order uh, of the confession. And it's interesting to see where they put some modification when you compare the, the, the three texts together. Um, but uh, what is obvious, it's not uh, that it's completely distinct. It's that it's pretty much the same thing uh, with uh, differences here and there, especially regarding uh, baptism and the church. But underneath that, there is the covenant theology. Um, so this um, historical context is there to help us see which caused which. Is it the historical setting that forced the pedo-baptists to find a theology to justify the structure that they already had in place? Or was their theology, uh, their ecclesiology, uh, uh, brought forth just by studying Scripture and uh, finding a, a natural covenant theology that happened to fit what they have inherited uh, through history? Well, of course, um, there's an inter-influence between uh, ecclesiology and, and, and covenant theology, and we shouldn't say that the Baptists had a, a pure biblical uh, approach without any influence of their own context. Um, but uh, both camps try to be consistent with the church they got at the end and have a consistent uh, federalism that will be uh, in harmony, that will fit this view of the church. So now let's uh, with the time uh, left over, try to go quickly uh, in the comparison with their, the, these two federalism. So, I ask the question, how could they justify this church of multitudes with pedo-baptism if they had a right understanding of the gospel? Uh, they had then a, 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 a soteriology that didn't fit their ecclesiology. Well, it's covenant theology, and we can summarize their view with one word, Israel. Israel is an earthly kingdom with heavenly hope. It's a mixed people. You have regenerate and unregenerate that are distinct, but not necessarily distinguished visibly. Uh, they stand united together. Um, you enter Israel through natural birthright, um, that you have inherited, but you also uh, are offered into that people a spiritual inheritance that you can receive through faith. Well, this looks a lot like 
the Reformed, Bapt uh, Reformed pedo-baptist ecclesiology. National church, mixed people, natural uh, uh, um, inheritance, natural birthright uh, that give, uh, uh, allows you to be baptized with a spiritual aim of uh, eternal life. Of course, all this would be mainly Old Testament. But that's not a big deal. How you say it's not a big deal that the church of the New Testament would be mainly and fundamentally justified by Old Testament teaching Well, because the Old Testament is an administration of the covenant of grace. This is the substance administration view. The Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 7, paragraph 5, this covenant, talking about the covenant of grace, was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. So what you see here, the substance Substance administration view is you have one substance, one covenant of grace under different administrations. So the difference between the Old and the New Testament are just superficial. They're not substantial distinction. So we need to understand that from this view of substance administration, everything under the Old Covenant is proper to the covenant of grace. It's really important to understand this principle. Everything under the old covenant, circumcision, the sacrifices of, 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 of animals, the shedding of, of bloods, and all that, uh, it's proper to the covenant of grace. It could be temporal, but it was the covenant of grace being administered directly by this old administration. And that's the way, um, by seeing that the old covenant is an administration of the same covenant of grace unto which the church is in, that they justify pedo-baptism and mixed church because they find the foundation of the church in the Old Testament in the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 17, 5 to 13. I won't read the entire passage. You can I'll come back to it later, but just verse 7 and 10. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is my covenant, verse 10, my, uh, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So what is exactly the privilege of being into the covenant of grace? If, if you don't have necessarily eternal life, what do you have if you're not necessarily saved? You can be saved, but it's not de facto. Well, the covenant of grace gives to all of its members that God will be your God and the God of your offspring. That's what God is saying to Abraham. God is the God of Abraham and the God of the children of Abraham. And that's how the pedo-baptists see that um, infants of believers have a right into the covenant, a natural right, and have a right also to the ordinance of the covenant of grace. Let me quote to you B.B. Warfield. It's the classic quote uh, where he explains, he, he sums up uh, the, the pedo-baptist argument in, in, in a very short uh, paragraph. He says, The argument in a nutshell is simply this. God established His church in the days of Abraham and put children into it. They must remain there until He puts them out. He has nowhere put them out. They are still then members of His church and as such entitled to its, uh, and as such entitled to its ordinances. Among these ordinances is baptism which, standing in similar place in the new dispensation to circumcision in the old, is like it to be given to children. Maybe it's, it's risky what I'm doing, because maybe some of you will start to understand the logic of pedo-baptism and will be convinced that you'll get out of this conference being Presbyterian. Okay, but there are some, at least in my point of view, difficulties with this logic. 
You're taking baptism, which is a new covenant ordinance. And you redefine it by old covenant ordinance and covenant to justify pedo-baptism. Because you don't have an example, you don't have a command to baptize infants or any uh, explicit example of, of such baptism. And all you have, it's an inference from another covenant that you say is the same. Well, we, we blame Catholics for doing just that with the Lord's Supper. They say the Lord's Supper is, a sacrifice, is sacrificial. And they use Old Testament uh, sacrifice to, 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 to explain what it is. And they're making that connection. Well, if it's good there, well, sh shouldn't Presbyterian uh, also uh, accept this view if, if, if Old Testament ritual could, could modify the New Testament ordinance in regard to baptism, well, maybe the Roman Catholics are right. And uh, the sacrifice of the old uh, shows us, well, the true meaning of the Lord's Supper. Maybe it's a sacrifice if we go into that logic. Well, we saw for those who were present this morning that ordinances ought to be defined by God's Word in the proper covenantal context into which they were given. That's the, the, the application of the regulative principle of worship. Um, we don't worship God exactly in the same way in the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, and under the New Covenant. Well, and under the Old Covenant, we use the blood of animals. If we do that under the New, it would be kind of satanical, right? I mean, uh, we, don't, we don't do that uh, because uh, it's not the same covenant. And it's not the same sacrifice. And we're not saying that there's no connection at all theologically. And I appreciate how Sam explained that there's, there's continuity in, in history and in what God was doing. But there's not identity in all those steps. It's, it's different things that are happening. But more problematic in my point of view, uh, from my standpoint, it's that this Presbyterian approach gives you unsaved members of the covenant of grace. And when you look at what is the new covenant, and they would say, well, the new covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace, which they have predetermined that is a mixed covenant. They're kind of, in my view, modifying the nature of the new covenant because they're severing the new covenant from salvation itself. Where Scripture says that salvation is the proper substance of the new covenant. And there are no unsaved members of the new covenant. Let me quote to you the prophet Jeremiah 31, verse 33-34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. For the, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Salvation for all new covenant members is not over-realized eschatology, as they say. It's biblical ecclesiology. It's exactly the terms of the covenant that the Lord says He will establish, we won't have in those days a mixed people as we have right now, where we have those who know the Lord and those who don't know. In that covenant, everyone will know me. And if there's someone in the visible church that doesn't know the Lord and is there by false profession, well, he's not in the covenant. That's what John says. They are not of us. It's obvious that it's not all who uh, uh, seems to profess faith that are of the covenant, but it's not because it gives them a right to be there. They are there by false profession. They're deceiving themselves, but they, it's not a mixed covenant that allows for a natural, uh, national uh, place to be in. Um, so... Um, Let's finish with the particular Baptist federalism. Uh, 
I know that the way I'm putting that looks like we're world apart in terms of covenant theology when we consider what it involves for baptism and church. But I think we are very, very close with pedo-baptist in our view of covenant theology. Uh, it's just the way we articulate the covenants with redemption history and with the covenant of grace. Both of us, we deal and we have to account for the same duality. I mean, when we read the Old Testament Scripture, we see that from Abraham you have a natural seed. The children of Abraham, he's talking about his natural seed, uh, the, his physical descendant. It's the people of God, Israel, that is in covenant with God. But at the same time, there's another level, we could say, where there's a spiritual seed. And there's another duality. We're talking about earthly things, earthly inheritance. We're talking about Canaan. But at the same time, they're looking forward to a celestial inheritance. So we have earthly realities and heavenly realities. You have a circumcision in the flesh, but at the same time, the prophet talks about the circumcision of the heart. So you have unregenerate and regenerate people. We both deal with those duality. It's the way we do articulate these realities together that makes the difference between pedo-baptist and credo-baptist. Pedo-baptists say that those two realities, those two those dualities, natural, spiritual, earthly, heavenly, circumcision of the flesh, circumcision of the heart, they belong to the same covenant of grace in a two-level structure, external, internal. That's the substance administration view. Credo-baptist, we have the same duality that we have to account for. But what we say is that these two belong to two distinct covenants. And on my, my, my research, I, I came across this quote from John Ball. He's a Presbyterian. He, he, he died just before the Westminster Assembly, but his writings influenced the, the Assembly. Um, his treaty was published after uh, his death uh, in 1645. And in there he explains um, what I just said, the view of the, the pedo-baptist. But I, I, I thought it was... At first, when I read that, I, I, I thought that my ecclesiology as a Baptist made me very, very far from this view. But after reading it over and over, I said, well, you know what? I pretty much agree with almost everything he says. It's just I wouldn't consider that as a two-level covenant of grace. But I'd rather explain those two different realities he's stating as two different covenants. Let me quote him to you. God, as an absolute sovereign, had right and authority over all men. So let me stop here. He's saying that God is the God of every man through creation. So we can say that there's only one God and everyone is under him. But in a certain and peculiar reason, they are called his people, so not everyone is called his people who receive his commandment and acknowledge him to be their Lord and Savior. So who is the people of God among every man? Well, those who receive his commandment and acknowledge him as their Lord and Savior. And these be of two sorts. And I still agree with him. For God doth make his covenant with some externally. That's here that I defer. Calling them by His Word, well, it's still external. It's not internal regeneration. It's external call, general call. Calling them by His Word and sealing them by His sacraments 
And they, by profession of faith and receiving of the sacraments, oblige themselves to the condition required, and thus all members of the visible church be in covenant. With others, God doth make his covenant effectually, writing his law in their hearts by his Holy Spirit, and they freely and from the heart give up themselves unto the Lord in all things to be ruled and guided by him. And thus God hath contracted covenant with them, sorry, with the faithful only. The first sort are the people of God outwardly or openly, having all things external and pertaining to the outward administration. The second are the people of God inward or in secret, whom certainly and distinctly the Lord only knoweth. So you know what? I'm pretty close to accept this view. Well, the only thing I don't accept in the way he's phrasing that is that he consider these external, internal believer as being part of the same covenant of grace. And the way he distinguishes them is by a two-level administration or reality. There's the external and the internal. The way the Credo Baptists explain the earthly realities and the heavenly realities the people of God um, nationally, not necessarily entering the uh, heavenly Jerusalem, but being the people of God on the earthly Jerusalem, is by not using a two-level covenant, but two covenants. So, you see, we're very close, actually. I'm not saying that's the only difference, but that's a basic difference to to take account the duality and, and, and making the proper distinction to not mix everything together. And when Paul is dealing with this Old Testament duality, he's not applying a two-level approach, but a two-covenant approach. Let me quote to you Galatians 4, 21-25. Tell me, you desire to be a pedo-baptist. Oh, sorry, my tongue slipped. You desire to be under the law. It was planned, I have to admit. <laughs> Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, these women are two covenants. Each covenant is defined by its own promise, its own rules, its own substance. They are not two levels of the same. They are distinct covenant. So it's true that some people are called the people of God externally for an earthly possession. But at the same time, according to another covenant that God was revealing, they could be called the, the people of God inwardly. But it was according to two different covenants. And these two covenants are the old covenant and the new covenant. And I think this is the biblical way to account for these realities. And that's the way our particular Baptist forefathers have uh, put it. So, um, for us, the question was not, was the covenant of grace present in the Old Testament? The question is, how was it present? And it was present in the form of a promise, not in the form of a covenant. Let's compare Westminster Confession of Faith. I know I passed my time, but since I'm the last preacher, uh, if, if, if you want to leave, you can go. I won't be upset, I understand. I just have a, a few more minutes and I'm done, okay? I promise. Westminster Confession of Faith says, This covenant was differently administered during the time of the law, the time of the gospel. Uh, paragraph 6. There are, therefore, uh, not 
two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one of one and the same under various dispensations. Our confession, the L London Baptist Confession, has really rejected this view and completely rewrite the theology of this chapter. Well, the first two first paragraphs are, are very similar, but the third one is really original. You don't find it neither in the Westminster, neither in the Savoy. And, and hear what it says. This covenant, talking about the covenant of grace, is revealed. Pay attention, the word revealed. Not established, not transacted, not established, not cut a covenant. Revealed in the gospel, first of all, to Adam, in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. I think that this is a rejection of the one covenant, two administration view. I know I'm going to upset some of our dear Reformed Baptist brother by saying that. I, I assume to upset you, I love you, and I think we're still a part of the same, uh, the same group and we adhere to the same confession. But I think it's a rejection of this understanding. And the affirmation of another view that the covenant of grace was first of all revealed, promised, and eventually it became established, it became transacted. And the, the way, the language that the confession used, it's, it talks about it was uh, fully, the full discovery uh, was completed. Um, so there's by farther steps until the full uh, revelation in the establishment. And John Owen, John the Baptist Owen, <laughs> explains why the covenant of grace was not a covenant before the establishment of the new covenant. Hear what he says. It lacked its solemn confirmation and establishment by the blood of the only sacrifice which belonged to it. Before this was done in the death of Christ, it had not the formal nature of a covenant or a testament as our, as our apostle proves in Hebrews 9, 15 to 23. And he goes on saying that uh, it's the same with the Mosaic Covenant. It was not established until it was established through sacrifices. Um, so, and the last sentence, to that end, the promise was not before a formal and solemn covenant. And from that affirmation, I think we're on safe ground to say that what we call the covenant of grace is actually the new covenant that was first of all revealed in the form of a promise until it became established. And we should not determine what is the nature of the covenant of grace. Who is in the covenant of grace? How do you enter into the covenant of grace? What is the covenant of grace? outside of the new covenant definition of it. We should not let the Abrahamic or the Mosaic covenant determine the covenant of grace because they were not proper to it. They were subservient to the new covenant of grace. And I think this is the biblical and theological basis for the establishment of believers only, church, and baptism. As our confession says, in 26.2, all persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, not destroying their own profession by any errors, everything the foundation or unholiness of conversion are and may be called visible saints and of such out all particular congregation to be constituted. So a credible profession of faith is needed to form a church or to be part of a church. It's not a church of multitude, church of mass. And the same profession of faith is required in order to be baptized because it's what the new covenant requires. Those who do actually profess repentance toward God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are not only proper subjects of this, or uh, sorry, are the only proper subject of this ordinance. I, I'm tired too. So, 
the new covenant does not recognize any natural birthright to its ordinances. No one that gets into it uh, can get into it because he's uh, the, the descendant, the seed of Abraham, uh, or he was born by the flesh. It's only those that confess faith toward Jesus Christ that are allowed. And let's give the last word, not to our confession, but to the Word of God by using the proof text that the confession is using to state that the, con the new covenant requires faith to receive its ordinance. Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Acts 8, 36, 37. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? He confessed his faith. Acts 2.41 So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Those who received his word. Acts 8.12 But then when Philip, when they believed Philip as preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And finally, Acts 18.8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthian hearing Paul believe and they were baptized. And you say, aha, here is the household baptism with infants probably there being baptized. But this is an inference that is neither good nor necessary. All right, my dear brothers and sisters, knowing that it's late, um, I want to conclude very fast. You will be shocked at the straightforwardness of my conclusion, and here it is. Particular Baptist 